Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Well, we're changing tack a little today. There's always so much to talk about in markets and in the economy. We kind of get focused on those things. But there's a lot to be said for stepping back and considering the path we take to sorting ourselves out financially, whether that's becoming wealthy or just not stressing too much. And it's fascinating, particularly when you work in a bank and you've worked with a lot of clients, the different paths that people take. So today I'm joined by a guest who has been talking about personal finance for decades. She is uh, the editor-at-large for CanStar. She's edited Money Magazine. She's a regular on the Today Show talking about money. She's written a book. Effie Zahos is the real deal when it comes to talking about money and the decisions we make that really affect our wealth. Effie, thanks so much for joining me. Hello, Gemma. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. I was actually very excited to come and chat with you today. It's, it's always so awesome talking to you. I remember, I feel like the first time we met was in, and I'm going to say the green room, it wasn't really a green room, at Sky Business like well over 10 years ago wow. in, the, in the old building. And, yeah, yeah. and I remember at the time being like, oh, Effie, we see all the amazing things that you write. I've been, you've been around for a while too then, Gemma. So. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not entirely certain that's a compliment, but have you always been with, how long have you been with Nat for? I have been with NAB for 15 years. So, yeah. yes, that's a long yeah. time. It's you a long time. You were at NAB then too, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, MLC back then, MLC. Yes, yes, that's right. And had I stayed in banking myself, probably I would have got like a, a gold watch one day too. I always kind of <laughs> regret that somewhere deep, deep down. <laughs> so I think I um, I think they offered me a kettle for my 15 years. So don't I don't know how long you have to last for the gold watch. But I do I do want to ask about your career because yeah. the range of roles you have is extraordinary. And yeah. the range of things you have done that have led you to this sort of broad personal finance expert. Yeah, role. yeah. It's amazing. So tell me where, how did you get there? What did you do? Yeah, and look, I actually don't sit and reflect back enough, I think. I think sometimes when I talk to, to people like yourselves in this situation, I think, wow, I, I have done quite a bit. I have been around the block, so to speak, because um, I'm really type of a person that's just, uh, you know, head down, bum up and, and off I go. And, and if I could uh, be honest with you, I don't think I ever had a grand plan that I'll ever end up here where I am. I mean, I've always loved finance. I mean, as soon as, you know, I grew up on the Gold Coast, I think my economics teacher should take credit for my career, really, because as soon as I did that at uh, high school, that was it. I knew I wanted to do finance. And I did. I ended up doing it like a Bachelor of Economics at UQ. Um, and I loved it. I, I, it all just made sense to me. And I feel very, very fortunate where I've landed because I, I think ultimately the role found me. Um, I did do banking, as I, I said, like I finished at UQ and back then, Gemma, you'd have um, banks come on campus and get the cream of the crop, as I say, <laughs> if I can say that. I like to think I was anyway. Um, and, uh, yeah, I ended up working for, for Westpac and it was probably the best thing I did because 
I, I started from the ground up, literally. Like I was literally in a, in a proofing centre where checks would come through and, and put them in the machines. I was a teller, then, you know, a commercial manager, product manager, branch manager, customer service manager. You kind of try everything and anything. And then I left the Gold Coast and landed in uh, Sydney under a graduate uh, uh, program there. And, and I loved it. I mean, that was back when we had the uh, Olympic Games, Westpac was a sponsor. So things were humming nicely and buzzing. We were inventing products like, you know, uh, rejaw facilities and rocket repay home loans they had back then. It was a good time. It was a great way to learn a- a- about money matters, put it that way. That's amazing. I do tell people I studied economics and <laughs> it was absolutely my economics teacher who I, I could, the thing to do was law, right? And so I was expecting I would go and do law, but then I found yeah. economics and I loved it so much. And uh, and then I also considered the possibility of becoming a journalist. So I, you're the only other person I've heard who's like, I loved my economics teacher. So fascinating. Not finance, me? economics. It's interesting again now. So how did you make the transition from yeah. banking it, to media and talking about personal finance? I know. And I just so if your listeners are getting confused, don't think that I was a comedian that went into finance because I, I get that so much, Gemma. I would be doing, say, a conference or something like that and people would say, now you're that effie woman. You, you're so funny. How did you move from like, you know, being a comedian into finance? So I definitely wasn't, I'm definitely not Mary Kustis, although, you know, that would be a great role to have too. Um so basically, Gemma, I back then jobs were in papers and I was just, I don't know why I was flicking through this paper, but I, I saw something under the brand Money and I used to watch that show. So for your listeners who don't know what Money Show was, it was back then it was like the equivalent, I think, of like Married at First Sight. They had ridiculous ratings, primetime TV, half an hour show, talking about the basics of money, talking about why you should be, you know, buying Woolworth shares rather than just eating, you know, or buying, you know, groceries from them. And it seems ironic that we don't have something like that today. But, you know, back then that was one of the highest rating shows and they were looking for like a senior research uh, person to help with the godfather of finance, Paul Clitheroe. Um, And that caught my eye, Gemma. And, um, I've got to say that I was on I was on a good wicket with Westpac. I was on a good income, a young kind of like a high flyer, doing well, uh, overlooking, you know, my office was looking at the Harbour Bridge back then and so on. And I remember going to this job interview with Paul Clitheroe and I was um, I was so wet behind the ears, so, so young, you know, and um, Paul was basically saying to me, you know, I'll, I'll give you one of the, the best money tips you ever heard. And his tip was, uh, you know, uh, it's not what you earn that counts, it's what you spend. And I'm thinking, this is a bloody basic tip. Is this it? It's not what you earn that counts, what you spend, but it, it's genius. And then he was saying to me, look, you know, you've got the job, something along these lines, you know, but it's basically at half the pay you're at. And I'm thinking, what? And he goes, well, you just agreed that it's not what you earn that counts, it's what you spend. So it's the story goes some way like that. And basically, yes, I accepted that job and I left that uh, great office and ended up working in Scott Street. And literally, you know, I was working in a bedroom next to a toilet. There were, you know, little houses there that uh, production houses that had these shows we were next door to what was uh, called um, Good Medicine and uh, I think Getaway as well. Um, so loved it. Really great years. And I remember telling my mum that, you know, I've left banking and and I'm now in TV. 
And she said, it's going to be the worst decision you've ever made. But she was wrong. <laughs> I was waiting to see how that was going to play out, whether, you, whether your mum's prediction was accurate or not. <laughs> I'm assuming that's amazing. There would not be a large number of people who would be willing to take half the pay yeah, to make that transition. That's extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't half-half, but close enough to it. And also it was it was a big shock working from a corporate field and going into, you know, everybody was just so relaxed and they were in shorts and, you know, I'm, I'm used to working in a corporate environment. It, it Was it a big deal? Not really when I – it was a big decision at the time, but I remember – you know, I'm a great believer that your biggest asset is yourself. I, I knew, look, I didn't have kids. I didn't have a mortgage then. I had no debts. I thought, what have I got to lose? Nothing, absolutely nothing. And, and I guess, you know, that that's one tip there that, you know, when you can take these risks, um, they're calculated risks. There was no consequence if I failed. Um, I mean, uh, you, you talk about now, would I do something now like that? There's a lot more writing <laughs> on things now. I've got more dependence relying on me. So it does limit your ability. But sometimes, you know, everything is risk for, for reward. And, and uh, at that time, it, it seemed right. It was a gamble, but it paid off. And for me, the, the TV show was great. But I mean, I'm still doing TV, but uh, the format's very limiting um, and then the opportunity to start a, a finance magazine came up. So I think I was over at, on that money show back in, what, 1997 or something like that. And 1999, the idea of a, a finance magazine came up and they had an editor, Pam Walkley, and they were looking for like a, a deputy. And I just grabbed that opportunity because I thought, well, this is brilliant. I, I could write thousands of words here and really delve into the financial matters rather than just doing a, a quick two or three minute story. So that that's how Money Magazine then came about. And it's still going. Which is incredible because that's not true of all magazines from the 90s, clearly. No, it's not. It, I mean, money for me was like my baby. I adored it, love it, love the brand still and fiercely protective of it. And um, I think for us we were we were basically, you know, the TV show was so successful because it kept things real, it kept things simple. People want to, you know, don't want to be confused and bamboozled that you don't need to have big words or, or jargon, just tell us how it is. And that was the success of money and then kind of took that philosophy to the magazine um, just kept it simple and kept it real. People want to know. Um, I can tell you now that basically, Gemma, what worked back then still works today. I, I have so many different hats that I wear and, and I have a kind of a, a good sense of what consumers are looking for. Um, and to be honest, Gemma, it hasn't really changed over that time as far as the topics. It's just people are delivering it differently. People are more engaged than ever, and I think the pandemic has a lot to do with that. But for me, I can tell you the top stories back then are probably still the top stories today. That's incredible because the mechanisms by which we speak to people have changed so much, podcast yeah. being a great example, and yet it's fascinating how much sort of basic financial literacy is still of so much value to so many people. Mm. I'm going to bring it back to you because I do want to understand there's always a story about the plumber with the leaky taps and, <laughs> and the doctor who smokes and all of those yeah, things yeah, yeah, for yeah. someone who has yeah. grown up exposed yeah. to 
the critical messages of yeah. personal finance, right? Yeah. The basics is because you can get deeply into markets but still not have a great understanding of super insurance. I'm fascinated yeah. by people who don't actually. Yeah. Tell me how you, what you've learned that you found most valuable and how you started to apply it. Did you apply it well or were you a little bit yeah. slow? <laughs> I'm a financial mess, Gemma, okay? No. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. But it took me a little while. I mean, I have written a book called A Real Girl's Guide to Money Air. I do go into a lot of personal elements there. Um, yeah, I've made mistakes. Of course I have. Um, yes, it took me a while to learn the concept of save little, save often. Um, and, and I do say my biggest mistake was probably when I finished um, uni, got my first job. And, uh, and I, I actually remember this. I was in a lineup with the other grads and we had this financial advisor come to us and, and um, basically say, you should salary sacrifice, you do your soup. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? And my mate Darren did it and I did it. And I, I regret that, Gemma. I should have done that because Time moves so fast and when you're young, you're invincible. You don't feel it. You don't think it's ever going to be there. You think you've got time. And really it wouldn't have hurt me to do what my mate was doing, but I didn't. And then again, yeah, I went on a shopping binge when I went older. I was probably like most 20-year-old girls back then. I mean, these days I think 20-year-olds have got it more together than I ever had. And, yeah, I, I have some serious carnage in my wardrobe, I can tell you about. Um, I got older and wiser and I think someone in my role, I, I always had a good financial sense, that's for sure, but it took me a little while. I mean, I bought property earlier thanks to the help of my parents, of course. Um, I wouldn't have been able to do it. I bought bank shares when I was younger. I really didn't understand a lot about them, but I knew I knew that I was better to, to buy shares and keep money in the bank. I had some basic sense and I did it because I thought I had to, but I probably didn't get really savvy till I was in my 30s, to be honest, Gemma. And uh, and now, of course, I'm all over it. Someone in my role has to be, if anything, I have a fear of not doing enough and that's the problem that someone like myself in my role that I'm constantly hearing, I'm constantly in the news kind of cycle and I'm going up, I'm going down, I'm talking to so many other experts as well and I feel like, oh, my gosh, I need another ETF, I need this, I need that. But then I've always kept things real, like I keep saying, and simple. For me it's, um, you know, property. It's having a small share portfolio, whether I go directly or, you know, I have some ETFs. Um, and as I'm older, I'd be foolish not to be pumping as much as I can into, into my super. And I literally do have that as a BPAY on my um, uh, banking. And um, it goes in either salary sacrifice or it's automated. Or even if I have 10 bucks at the end of everything going out, I put it straight by BPAY. So, yeah, oh, you could say I'm a bit obsessed and it's probably not healthy. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. It is quite true when you are exposed to this stuff all the time, you can yeah. second guess yourself. It's a little bit, I find it very often with people who are in markets, particularly if you are watching screens all day, it's very yeah. tempting to place a little bit here and a little bit there and not a little bit here. Yeah. <laughs> Go, God, your tax return must be a nightmare, an absolute <laughs> nightmare. I do remember very early in my career I was talking to uh, one of the guys who knew the senior people in our firm really were, and he's like, they basically should have just bought the index. They own one of everything, yeah. sometimes two yeah. of everything, right? 
Well, you would be the same. I mean, I, 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 in my problem is, is I am kind of a, an expert across so many different areas, but I, you know, it would not be as deep dived as you are in, in, in trading. So, I mean, would you? Are you the same? Do you just basically buy every stock that you think is good value that represents value or, or hits a price or whatever the case may be? No, I'm really picky, but then yeah. I get annoyed with myself. <laughs> <laughs> things that are just outside my range I'm like ah should have done that it's yeah. um we you know what you miss out on that's always the frustration oh, when you're absolutely. close to it you know yeah. the decisions you didn't make yeah. some of the wealthiest people I know are still beating themselves up for like big wins they missed out on yeah, I was funny. I do remember, um, I think I remember what I was wearing that day as well. I remember being on today's show and um, talking about this new buy now, pay later that had just launched. It was all new concept and so on. And, um, you know, for, for me, I was always like, this is loan. This is a credit. This is got to watch out. I realised that, gosh, people are going to really hit hard on this if it's not managed. So for me, it was also like a socially or ethically, I just didn't think this product was right. And I don't know why I just, I thought, no, I can't invest in it if I'm talking like this with it. And then the share price just kept going and going and going and going. And I thought, wow, okay, there's something I missed. That is absolutely one of the more interesting ones. I know quite a few people who felt the same way from an ethical yeah. perspective, particularly if they're on the other end of it. Yeah. Uh, I know a lot of mortgage brokers and and lenders who are like, there's nothing worse than yeah. a client who comes to you with a lot of buy now, pay later. You just cannot give them credit. Yeah. And so it's um and so they've been super cautious on it. But it's uh, it was a great stock. It did very well. It did very well. And really, I think I was silly because I'm sure not all my investments, you know, I don't invest solely in ethical funds. Put it that way. Yeah, I have a few, lots of ETFs that are not branded ethical. So, <laughs> so you applied a personal filter, but it didn't didn't. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't necessarily the same filter you apply to other things. Very silly of me. You've mentioned your parents already, and that yeah. they helped you, and some advice your mum gave you that thankfully did not turn out <laughs> yeah. to be accurate. Yeah. Did you learn anything specifically from them? I'm going to take a stab that you're Greek and I have some Greek girlfriends who are <laughs> extremely astute financially, right? Very, very astute. And they learned it at home and they got out of school and started applying those lessons really early. Was it the same for you? Yeah. What gave it away, Gemma, my name, Effie? <laughs> Could um, be that. <laughs> yeah. Look, uh, my parents obviously, um, yeah, uh, migrated from Greece in the 60s, worked extremely, extremely hard. Um, my mother was one of 12 kids, two daughters only. She was pulled out of school at, at a really young age, I, I think grade two or three, um, and basically, you know, stay home, you have to, you know, cook, clean, help, help your mother. So she was really robbed of her financial journey, so to speak, or even education or everything she was robbed from. But boy, she is switched on lady. She's she's my powerhouse. She really taught me so many money lessons. And I think even both my parents just worked so, so hard. Were they smart at it all? No, I'll be honest, Gemma. They knew what to do, but I come from a really working class family. Um, you know, we lived above a fish and chip shop. They worked seven days a week. We basically, you know, three kids were left to our own devices. 
Um, so for, for me, I really learned the value of a dollar and how hard it is to earn. And I, I think my parents did the best that they could possibly do. And the best they did for me, when I say my parents helped me with the first property, it was basically, it was just putting down a guarantee. Um, you know, I haven't been showered <laughs> with money whatsoever. I always say to my kids and they think that, mom, you didn't migrate from overseas. I moved to Sydney with literally I sound like I am a migrant here. With I moved from the Gold Coast to Sydney with two suitcases. That was it. Uh, and the rest I've created myself. So I think the greatest thing my parents gave me was the lesson of the value of a dollar and the work ethic. Um, uh, for, for me, I, I guess that's what's driven me all these years. I mean, I've got to say, when, when I turned 21, I remember my parents had saved so long and they gave me a present and it, it was in a passbook saver account, Gemma. And by that stage, I'd finished my economics degree and I was right into it. And I said, I thought, my goodness, you've been saving in a passbook saver? What? Um, But like I said, they did the best they possibly could um, and learnt the value of dollar knew that, you know, when it comes to, to to money, you don't borrow to buy assets that don't grow in value. You save little, you save often, you save in what you can, you understand. Really basic principles they taught me, but I kid you not, they're the ones that have really helped me. That's so interesting about borrowing only to buy assets that appreciate in value, mm. because with credit so freely available now, I have the same view. I have hate debt for non-productive assets. I hate it. And during that whole zero interest rate period, I felt like such an anomaly. Like you feel quite odd. I would be the last person on earth to not borrow for a car, for example. And it's fascinating. If you grew up with that, it's hard to let go of. And yet it feels very unusual now. Your kids are quite a bit older than mine, but I want to ask you this for myself as much as for anyone listening. (laughs) Your kids are going to grow up in a really different environment to the one you did. And it's the same for me. My kids are growing up in a different environment to the one I grew up in. Do you try to instill the same values in them? How do you do that? Yeah, and they've grown up with listening to a mum who's, you know, does a lot of radio interviews or talking and so on. So, you know, all they hear is doom and gloom half the time. in the house when I'm talking and I remember when I was you know they were younger and I was like no no this is not a personal situation this is the economy what's happening and so on so on but yeah they're very financially aware I mean they've got me as a mum they're, they're forced to and and they they learn at different levels like my daughter now is 22 she's finishing a, a degree she's down in Canberra and I tell you what she's you know she's a chip off the old block she's actually even better than me in a sense of how she thinks. So, you know, for her now, it's, um, you know, what's the best thing to do when I'm out of uh, uni, getting a, uh, her job. She's already got a graduate job, which is great. She's done doing so well. She's been saving for a long time as well. And, and so is my, my son. And it took my son a little while longer to understand not to save in just a bank account. Um, he was a bit of a late bloomer to exchange traded funds, but they've both been regular, regular savers. And uh, um, uh, yeah, really do enjoy what how the process and how it works and, and so on. So, yeah, they, they've definitely learned from their mum, <laughs> absolutely. I'm always afraid, and it wasn't my kids, thankfully, who said this, but I've seen it before, but maybe because my kids have actually probably never seen us do it, where a friend of ours said to his son, oh, no, we can't afford to buy that particular item. And the kid said, no, but you just go to the wall. 
Like just put your card in, just go to the wall. I was like, my kids are probably like, just tap. Like if you tap your watch or something, the money's just there. I'm like, that's not how it works. It's all too easy now. Oh, there've been plenty of mistakes. I can tell you that my son was saving for a house. This was when he was a lot younger. He was seven or eight and he was saving for it. And he was hell bent on, he's been infatuated with property and he was saving for it. And I think he had, you know, maybe $800 finally saved up or something like that. And then we went past JB Hi-Fi, was it, or, or EB Games or something, and he wanted to buy an Xbox. And um, he wanted to blow it all, and I was mortified. Like, his goals just going, what do you mean you want to buy a PlayStation? What is this? And I said, so well, you, you've got to be saving for a house. And he goes, Mum, let, let's be real here. It, it's like a million dollars. And plus, I'm only seven. I've got heaps of time to say. <laughs> So there have been some setbacks, Gemma. Don't get, don't get me. Uh, I don't want to fool you into thinking I have uh, financial geniuses at home. Absolutely. Oh, bless him, though. I mean, what kind of seven-year-old saves for a house? It's um, <laughs> I'm lucky if I can get my 10-year-old to save for a week. It's, <laughs> but that's okay. So let's come back to the people that you were learning from. You worked with Paul Clitheroe. Paul's yeah. so lovely. He's delightful. He's been yeah. on this podcast before. And he does do a superb job of bringing things down to that really clear, concise advice. So an amazing person I imagine to work with. Were there other people that you feel you've learned a great deal from over the years? Yeah, look, definitely uh, my parents first and foremost for instilling this work ethic that I have. Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad, I don't know, but I'm pretty, it's pretty relentless work ethic that I have. Um, that's definitely come from my my mother and father. Paul Clitheroe is a huge influence on me. I mean, obviously, I was young when I started, when I when I met Paul and, and working with him um, on the, the Money Show and then also um, on Money Magazine, a huge, huge influence. And then I've also got to say Ross Greenwood, um, a big influence on me as well. Um, more so as a, you know, um, I think like a, a mentor in a career kind of perspective because we have kind of similar backgrounds in the sense of what we do and how we got here and so on. He actually edited a magazine in the UK, I believe, called Shares. So he's been a, a big influence on myself as well. Yeah. So the the key advice, save often spend less than you were, (laughs) you know, start early, all of this key advice that you learned. As you develop a greater level of financial literacy, you've referred to salary sacrifice, you've referred to a couple of other things. What are the other sort of key things that started coming through as your understanding got more sophisticated? Like, What were the things that you were like, that's gold, I'm going to hang on to that, I need to start implementing that sort of advice to myself? Yeah, yeah, so for me... (sighs) I guess it's always been to to keep things simple. And the more complicated, say, investment is or device it is, the the less useful it becomes as far as I'm concerned. And for me, it's also primarily personal finance is personal. I think we're so often trying to compare ourselves to others, that this is the benchmark you've got to get. This is what you've got to do. And it makes you feel a little bit incompetent sometimes or become overwhelming. And I think the number one rule there is also understand that, you know, things, you know, the grass may seem greener over the other side, but chances are it's fake. You know, the Joneses definitely aren't as rich as you probably think they are, and it's important to focus on yourself. I think once you do that, then there's a bit more of a a relaxation involved. The most important, I think I've, I've read this one book a while ago, what was it called, Mind Over Money, Claudia Hammond. Um, a psychologist, but it was a finance book that really changed 
the way I started to think about money um, because, look, strategies I understand, you know, negative gearing, basically how does an exchange-traded fund work, how do mortgages work, you know, superannuation, how is it taxed? I mean, you can learn all that, but that doesn't mean you're going to be good at any of it. Um, it it's like, you know, students, you, you, you just... Uh, memorize a, a textbook and that doesn't make you a, a genius at it. It just means you've got a good memory. Acting on things is far more important. And a lot of that comes down to behavioral economics. And that book was a breakthrough for me because it really got to the, the root of basically why is it what I do with my money? Why, why do I act like this? Why do I fall here? Why am I good here? Why am I procrastinating so much? And I think once people really get to understand themselves from a behavioural point of view with their money, then they can overcome a lot of issues. And I guess in my field as well, I, I did a podcast for, for, for CanStar and it was called Real Money and I got to meet these amazing people, Jim, that, you know, there, there was one that was, it was a, she was a true shopaholic and it is an illness and we joke around it and just think, oh, you're a shopaholic, but it's actually a very serious issue and the underlying reasons that this woman so bravely gave were just an eye-opener and again it came really down to mind over money there and I think the most important thing for me is really understanding your relationship with money and I've had to work that out myself as well um, and then from there I think once you know that you, you can put what I call these you know fixes in place of triggers and, um, you know, it, people talk about FOMO, fear of missing out. Well, for me, sometimes it's fear of jumping in uh, and that can be just as bad. So I've learned, okay, well, why am I afraid to do this? What do I need to do to overcome that? So for me, that's a, a very important lesson. The rest are kind of, you know, I can say save little, save often. It's not what you earn, your counts, what you spend, you know, pay yourself first. They're all very good advice and should be followed. But I think it, the important thing is to understand who are you with money and why? What is your relationship with it? Oh, I love that. I know you work with Evan Lucas at yes. InvestSmart and I've had Evan on the podcast talking about his book, which covers a lot of those themes. Yeah. And we were having a funny conversation because you, once you start looking at it, you go, God, I've got some really weird habits. I've got this strange thing where I I worry about saving money on really small things, like things uh -huh. under, under 20 bucks. And I'm like, it's so weird. Like I know I can buy them half price fairly frequently. So I'll wait to their half price, but the $10 doesn't matter. Like I don't care about $10, but I will wait for this thing to be half price. And I might wait a few weeks. It's just ridiculous. It's a ridiculous habit. It is. And there is a name for that, but it's just slipped me. And it, it's the reason why, for example, we can go out, we probably spend more time, you know, looking at a, a car and, you know, what it costs and so on and less time than basically choosing, say, a right home loan, which is an ongoing expense and it's going to take fruit for our life. Or it could be why we spend so much time, as you just said now, contemplating. Sometimes I've been in $2 shops, Gemma, and I'm contemplating, should I buy this? And yet, if it's Friday night and if I am out somewhere and there's a cocktail there at $15 or $20, I don't contemplate that. Oh, that is, yeah, 100%. I'm in the same It's hilarious how irrationally we attach to yeah. some things and not yeah. others. I've told this story before too. We uh, we bought a car in 48 hours sort of post-COVID. 
because we had a 14-year-old car and it was about to blow up and there was no that we bought the second last car in Sydney I think at the time yeah yeah effectively yeah. no preparation for that decision and it was yeah it was a meaningful amount of money out of we literally just went out and bought it. Like, goodness me that was but the thing that is was you quite bought it you didn't you didn't have a loan uh, so no, God, no, 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 we didn't have that. I, I'm the same with cars. I will not borrow money for a car. I've only ever done it once, Gemma, and that was my very first car and I paid it off in a year. Um, and since then I've paid basically cash for my cars. And th- that would mean that I've only had two cars since then. I run them to the ground. Um, and, yeah, I'm a big believer on <laughs> not throwing money at something that uh, depreciates as soon as you drive out. We were exactly the same. The car was 14 years old yeah, and we, yeah. we realised that if it needed a part, that was it, yeah. it was over. <laughs> so once we are at that stage, we're like, oh, we actually need to upgrade at this point. We're starting to become a liability. So let's go to the other end because I do think sometimes this is even more important to think about and that is what is the advice either you've received or you see often, right, because you see financial media more than almost anyone, that is regularly out there or shared with people that you think, no, that's not for me or it shouldn't be for anybody. Yeah, look, look, there is so much out there as far as we're in a a situation now where just about every day we're exposed to some kind of scam. Um, For me, and I might be going a little bit off track to to your question there, Gemma, but for for me it's I think where we've failed even at, at a school level is really understanding financial ads and understanding financial products. When you see, say, a one-pager or something like that, what does it actually mean? How do I decipher through that? We aren't financially literate when it comes to reading an ad. Um, You know, when you see a a catalogue for food, you you see rice, it's 99 cents. Yes, that's what I can buy. The unit price is that. We've even gone so far as unit prices. It's pretty clear. When I see something to do with a financial product, half of us just don't get it or understand it. and, And yet we're expected to jump into it. I think for in my role as a communicator, it seems to be, and again, this could be because I'm in the news cycle and maybe it's not as um, pronounced as what I think it is, but there seems always always to be some kind of urgency. When do I jump into the property market? I haven't jumped into the property market. Should I wait till it falls down? Should should I should I buy now or you know that kind of thing? Try to time everything. And for most of us, we can't time it. I certainly can't time it. And, you know, I always resort back to the thing, look, if you've done your due diligence, if you can afford it, if the if it's sustainable for you to maintain, then why are we all panicking? What, what Why are we trying to work out when is it exactly the right time to jump into anything? Um, so that concerns me a little bit that people feel like they've got to jump in, do it now, because for a lot of us, you put that sense of urgency on them, we do nothing. Um, and then there's a real disparity between, you know, the haves and have nots. And, and I, I mean, I do sit on the board for extra as well with financial literacy. And I, I think for me, it's taking it back to the basics always, because that's kind of a universal language where most of us can all benefit from. Yeah, I love that. I think that sense of urgency and that desperation to time things to perfection can lead to some really weird decisions. The person yeah. I know, and obviously I'm not going to mention any names, uh, but I I know some people who tried to time the property market to mm. perfection and were absolutely adamant that they were not going to buy 
in a rising market and then we're going to wait for the market to fall. Actually, I know several people like this, one of whom is a property fund manager, which is the yeah, funniest part about it, but, um, <laughs> and was absolutely determined not to make a mistake and ended up buying at the absolute peak of the market because they felt so defeated by yeah. how much prices had riven, d- risen. They yeah. were afraid they'd never get another opportunity to get in, got in, and then the market did fall. Yeah. And I think, oh, God, if you'd only just bought the things that you looked at that were 99% of what you wanted. Yeah. You could have saved yourself a lot of stress and probably a lot of money too. And that's right. And Gemma, for, for most of us, it's, it's not rocket science and it shouldn't be. It should really be. And for a lot of us, we just don't have that disposable income where, you know, we can build wealth fast. So for me, it's about just ticking off some boxes and making sure I get there. I mean, I feel I've done very well for someone who is a finance journalist. And look, I definitely am paid you know, nicely in that sense, you know, uh, uh, finance journalists, I think, get paid a little bit more, Gemma, maybe. Um, but, you know, I'm not definitely crying poor whatsoever. But uh, it's a case of I've done the best with what I have because I've kept things simple. It is about mortgage, pay it off as fast as you can, invest a little bit, whether it's through, say, exchange-traded funds or going direct. If you don't understand it, get some help. There's some great information, you know, moneysmart.gov.au, government website, some great information. And then, you know, build your super. For a lot of us, unfortunately, we only move if it's for savings, which is why I do like a mortgage, which is why I do like super. I mean, when you think about it, in a lot of cases, we probably wouldn't be saving if we weren't forced to save. And this forces us to save. So it's about just keeping things very simple and doing it. It's interesting. I did a, a, a quiz for CanStar called Test My Money IQ, Gemma, and it was um 21, what I would think are pretty simple questions. To be fair, some people may not know all of them, but they were questions around everyday financial products that we have. So, for example, you know, do you save money by turning on the dishwasher at midnight? What does MBN 50 mean? Is redraw and mortgage offset the same thing on a home loan? Um, How much can you earn before you're taxed? Questions like that. And we took this out and uh, did a a sample survey to see what Aussies would get. And the average score was 11 out of 21. And what was even more concerning was that men did better than this, which is great for men, but women didn't. And, you know, if I'm going to stereotype here, we're always told, oh, women manage the household finances, they do the budgeting, yet we failed this test. So it always, I always do kind of get deflated a little bit after so far and how, where we've come with financial literacy that we are still lagging behind in a lot of areas. There's so much work to do, although to be honest, I don't know what NBN 50 is. <laughs> <laughs> I consider myself reasonably financially astute, but I'm going to get you, uh, yeah, because that's because you're not doing the budget. Someone else is at home. Your kids are. Oh, my God. My <laughs> husband has never done a budget. If I asked him to pay a bill, we'd get a letter in the mail a month later going, why hasn't it been paid? Well, uh, let me tell you, I keep my finances separate from my husband, Gemma, so um, you don't need to <laughs> Yeah, wow. Oh, no, I do all of ours. It's much easier for everybody. I like doing it. We run two separate households that way. Yeah, amazing. So to wrap up, because there's so much we've covered and so many things for people to take away and think about, if nothing else, even if you are financially literate and you are feeling very financially astute, 
Looking across everything is always a challenge, right? You might feel really on top of things, but you've got no idea what's happening with your super, or you might be all over your super, but your mortgage is not great, or you've got an outstanding credit card, or you have a car loan or whatever it might be. What would you leave people with as a piece of advice to go, even if you're feeling fabulous, here's something you can start with? Yeah. If you're absolutely terrified of your financial situation, here's something you can start with. For me, it's not going to happen if you don't do anything. Simple as that. Um, And what I do personally twice a year, um, and the beauty about having everything um, digitally these days is that you cannot hide. We always under kind of, you know, we always don't think we eat as much as we eat. We always spend more than what we think. We we underestimate a lot. Um, I dare you to do this. Open up your statement where your money goes into, whether that be a bank account or your offset, wherever it goes, wherever your cash goes into. Then I actually print this out, highlight two highlighters. One, highlight your fixed costs. So if you see, you know, Telstra, Vodafone, Optus, whoever your, you know, phone bill is with Aldi, whatever, whatever, um, highlight your fixed costs in one colour, then highlight your discretionary spending on the other. Chances are that discretionary spending, you're going to see a sea of colour there with that one because everything is just tap, tap and go now and we kind of lose track of that. And we are a subscription lifestyle now. Let's face it, you get paid, everything comes out. So everything's on subscription. And you'll then have a clear picture of your discretionary spending versus um, non-discretionary. And then what you're going to do, and this is laborious and it's boring and I get it, but you will be so happy when you do it uh, because nothing is sweeter than seeing some savings come back in. I look at all my household bills and go through them one by one, and it does take a while. Um, What am I paying? Can I do better? Do I still need that? Do I need to increase my excess on my car to lower it a little bit? Do I need to do this or this or this or this? Like I work a lot from home now, so I'm not doing as many Ks, so I reduce my insurance that way by saying, look, it's parked outside, blah, blah, blah. I did some analysis and even with CanStar on basically the average versus the cheapest of five-star. And in the first year on all the most common household bills, there was a $12,000 difference. So, and that includes a mortgage. That was the big one, actually. Um, you know, I can tell you now there's about a 1.41% difference between the cheapest home loan and the standard variable, the average one we're paying. So if you haven't refinanced lately, there are some big savings there. So that needs to be done twice a year, needs to be done. I do it at Christmas only because I have holidays and I've got some time. And then I do it at the end of the financial year because I'm doing tax. So everything just makes sense to do it then. You've got to do that. No one's going to help you. No, it's not going to happen. The savings aren't going to happen to you. You've got to do it. So if you're not happy with where you are, then take action, change it. And and that's a simple way of doing it. And that's just looking at your digital footprint. That $12,000 figure is amazing. Mm. And it's going in the headline of this podcast, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) You're obviously putting this stuff out there all the time. Where can people go to follow you and see this sort of stuff so they can keep on top of what you're up to? You can follow me basically on my socials anywhere. It's just Effie Zaha. So uh, Twitter, Insta, LinkedIn, Facebook. Catch me every day on Today Show at 7.55 and online at CanStar as well. Um, and just for disclosure, I do sit on the board for InvestSmart, which we're talking about, Evan, as well, and um, uh, sit on the board for Extra, which is a not-for-profit financial literacy grant-giving organisation. Yeah, you weren't kidding about the work ethic, were you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I like to keep a little bit busy. 
Effie Zahos from absolutely everywhere. Normally I will <laughs> state one firm, but all the firms that you've just mentioned and places. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on your show, Gemma. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Also, I hope you got a lot out of this one. It feels like maybe you're on top of things until you start looking a little bit more closely. As always, we love hearing from you. We get fantastic feedback. We love getting your questions and your requests for future topics and guests also. Please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.